Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Hello, I'm Natalie Grogan, a research assistant in the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. CNAS is committed to bold, innovative, bipartisan research that drives national security policy forward. The Military Veterans and Society Program focuses our research on military personnel, veterans, and the civil-military divide. One of our most important topics is diversity among the military community, and we strive to elevate underrepresented voices and perspectives. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us at this virtual panel discussion, the third annual Women's Veteran Author Panel held by the MVS program at CNAS. This event is the first in a year-long series of veteran author panels under the umbrella of our Elevating Diverse Voices initiative. We have an excellent lineup of women veteran authors on this panel, and I'm excited for you all to hear about their work. After the moderated discussion, we will open the floor for audience questions. Feel free to use the chat and Q&A functions within the webinar to submit your questions throughout the panel discussion. This event is being recorded and the audio will be released as a CNAS podcast and on the CNAS website soon. Today, we are proud to partner with our adjunct senior fellow, Jeanette Haney, who is moderating this panel. Jeanette is a Marine Corps veteran and a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. I'll now turn it over to Jeanette to introduce our panelists and get started. Thank you, Natalie, and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our amazing panelists today. In no particular order, uh, first is Pamela Broadman. Pamela served more than 15 years as a linguist in the US Air Force. She has a double degree from the University of Nebraska at Omaha in English literature and foreign language studies with a concentration in Spanish. She is currently studying in an MFA program at the same university and is a contributor to the anthology Choices, a collection of questionable decisions, which is a fantastic name, by the way. Um, next is Kelly Kennedy, who is the managing editor for The War Horse. Kelly is a best-selling author and award-winning journalist who served in the US Army from 1987 to 1993, including tours in the Middle East during Desert Storm and in Mogadishu, Somalia. She's the author of They Fought for Each Other, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Hardest Hit Unit in Iraq, and the co-author of Fight Like a Girl, The Truth About How Female Marines Are Trained with Kate Germano. As a journalist, she was embedded in both Iraq and Afghanistan and is the only US female journalist to both serve in combat and covered as a civilian journalist. And she is the first female president of military reporters and editors. Diane Carlson Evans is a former captain in the Army Nurse Corps who served in the combat zone of Vietnam. She's the founder of the Vietnam Women's Memorial Foundation Incorporated. She is the author of Healing Wounds, a Vietnam War combat nurse's 10 year fight to win women a place of honor in Washington, DC. And fourth, we have Mags Vibo, an artist, scholar and war veteran from Richmond, Virginia. Her art features in poetry films, in anthologies, podcasts, art exhibits, festivals, print, broadcast, and social media sites. Her poetry has been published in the anthologies Fevers of the Mind, 
and my teeth don't chew on shrapnel. So thank you all for joining us today. We are really excited to have this discussion uh, and have a, a, a pretty good audience for this as well with some questions, I'm sure at the end. We're gonna launch off with some moderated questions to start. So first for all four of you, and we'll go in the order that I just introduced you for this initial question. Um, we really want to learn more about your experiences and how they shaped your writing. We're excited to learn about this. And I think many of our audience members might have similar interests in the future. Um, so first, can you each tell us about your work? Why you chose to write about the topic you did in the medium reform that you wrote and at the time of your life when you wrote it? Can you tell us a bit as well about if and if so, how your experiences as a veteran informed your work? And we'll start with Pamela. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, well, I've been uh, very much under the practice of writing what you know. And so I've been writing a lot about my experiences while I was in the military, uh, especially very, to be honest, to be very sex fueled years in the military. Uh, so I wanted to write mostly about women that um, not only suffered trauma, but also how to recover from it and the choices that they make along the way to get through, um, through their time, through dealing with the trauma, dealing with um, just men that don't treat them right. Um, and I felt that having strong women um, that were open about their sexuality without being judged by it um, felt very close to me because that's kind of how um, I did my military career was a lot of um, choices that sometimes were not very good choices and sometimes uh, they led to incredible moments. And I always wanted to be very open about that. Um, so pretty much my experience in the military has been what I write about, um, especially uh, the from the focus of a woman. So I wanna ask one follow-up about that because that's quite the kickoff for this panel. So thank you for that. Um, and, and thank you for, for kind of getting right into it. Um, you know, one of the things we noticed reading your work is that in the story choices, only the women are named. And uh, so I think I can potentially guess as a part of why, but I'd love to hear you explain a little bit more about why that is and how the women in your story seem to move away from some of the cookie cutter characters that we often see and how much of that was deliberate um, and based on your experience. Well, um, the choice of making the women only be named in my um, in my story was not consciously made. It was mostly because I wanted to focus about her life and about who she was. Um, the men were just um, sort of additions to her life. They weren't, um, you know, men do this all the time where women are just sort of tools to further their stories. Um, I didn't want to relegate men to that uh, consciously, but focusing on just her um, and my main character uh, led me to just write their names, the women's names, because 
um, I felt that was what it was about. It was about the women in the life. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, as far as the cookie cutter, women are in cookie cutters uh, made, you know what I mean? They, they come in all shape and forms and we make choices that are, um, like I said before, sometimes lead to good things and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I wanted to be open about those, um, those situations where uh, women just have to be step outside of the box and be different and um, you know how this, they gain that strength throughout these constant choices that we have to make um, and so in my experience all the women that I've met through the military outside the military uh, none of them have fit a mold they've always stepped outside of that mold um, so why write about women that fit in one specific box um, it's just not realistic so that's that's where I was headed with that. Thank you. Um, and I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that with some further follow-up questions. Kelly, can you go next and tell us a little bit about your experiences in the writing? Yeah, so to follow up on what Pamela said, I, I came out of the military out of Desert Storm and uh, Mogadishu feeling like we are absolutely invisible. If you were anything but like a square jawed general in that era, you didn't really have a voice. And part of that was intentional. You know, the, the military didn't allow embeds. It was reporters in, in a pen and you had to be able to do a certain amount of push-ups to be able to, to go in at all. And just, it, it was uh, very controlled. Um, and then as a, as a woman, gosh, there were 10 of us, right? <laughs> Coming out of Desert Storm in Mogadishu. So I went to college, wanted to be a journalist, um, did the civilian thing for a long time, wanted to cover the military and kept being uh, kind of pushed in the education beat, the family issues beat. Um, there was, in fact, one editor who told me I couldn't cover war because my arms were too small. And this was after I'd served in war twice. So uh, <laughs> I realized that the only way to get in there and and to to get back to what Pamela was saying I, I really wanted to tell the stories of um of how different we were of how we weren't cogs in a machine about how we were men and women with different identities and different politics and different I uh, it just the, the whole spectrum we didn't look the same um we had different futures that was a big thing coming out so I went to Army Times where I figured they'd let me join, they'd let me cover the military. <laughs> so, so it's a civilian publication. Um, while I was there, I was writing about healthcare and PTS. I embedded with a family to write about that. And then I did an embed in Iraq. And so the, the story ended up being more happenstance than anything horrible happenstance. I was embedded with Charlie Company, 126 Infantry uh, in 2007 in Adamia, Iraq. And they got hit really hard, um, like two days into my embed with them. And we lost five of our guys when their uh, Bradley rolled over a deep buried IED. And uh, the photographer and I had been writing one each in, in the Bradley, they had two Bradleys. 
And at the last minute, we decided not to go out with them. And um, one of us would have been in that Bradley. So we're sitting at a picnic table, like listening as the radio traffic's coming in and the, the medics are trying to respond. And as, as that was happening, we're hearing that a um, MP who was part of the quick reaction force had leaned forward in her Humvee and an RPG had hit her. Uh, then the, the chaplain was coming in and his vehicle got hit and, and he was okay, but he had these deep bruises on his legs. And then the battalion commander found out his, his kid back home um, had a heart problem and, and died that day. Like the day just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and they actually immediately got us out of there, but the unit before we had ever gotten there, they had a Medal of Honor recipient, recipient. Ross McGinnis threw himself on a grenade and saved his friends. Um, after I left, they had a first sergeant kill himself on a patrol. My guys were accused of mutiny. I mean, it just turned into this huge mess of a story. And while I was still in Iraq, the guys sent me a note and said, hey, they're they're doing, they're flagging us. They're flagging the guys who died before the, we were accused of mutiny for refusing to go out. And they asked for my, my help. So I ended up writing a series about it. And then that led to the, the book. So that's sort of the, the long-winded explanation for it. But I was able to sit down with these guys at the unit level. And we ended up doing the first unit level reporting out of Iraq, you know, talking to the lower enlisted and the company commanders and just trying to tell their story from a really human level. Thank you. That, that's a lot. So thank you. <laughs> um, and Diane, um, on to you as well for the same question. Well, I waited 50 years to write my book, Healing Wounds, and there was a reason for that. And I think there's such a universality among us women veterans. But when I talk to you younger women, and I I'm the, I'm the oldest, I'm the senior here. I served in Vietnam in 68 and 69, but I was very driven to, to build a memorial to honor the women who'd served during the Vietnam era because of several factors, beginning with the homecoming or lack thereof. When we returned home from Vietnam, Vietnam veterans were called um, a lot of things. They were also called um, drug-crazed, glassy-eyed baby killers. And we were the scapegoats for an unpopular war. We were blamed, we were humiliated. So we stayed silent and that included us women. We too stayed, stayed silent. And I think about us women and during the Vietnam era, we didn't go where we were wanted. We went where we were needed. And we, we stood up and, and signed up to serve during a very unpopular war, knowing we weren't wanted, but we knew we were needed, especially us nurses. So in 1982, with the dedication of the wall and learning that there would be a statue portraying men, that's when it started boiling up inside of me, this, this passion, this need to, we need to remember the women. And now we remembered the men who died. The eight women's names are on the wall. But now we have a figurative portrayal, a bronze sculpture that looks like men. And once again, women then will be held invisible without a voice, without an image that says, this is what we look like. 
this is what we did. And then when I stood in front of that wall of names, and when I saw that statue of the three men, I thought, if they belong here on this site, we women belong here. We served beside them. We were there to save their lives, those of us who were nurses. And so this very strong um, passion, call it courage, call it whatever you want. I look back and I thought, yeah, that was courage because the opposition was fierce, that there would never be another addition to the Vietnam Memorial. So I did my research. And in 1983-84, when I started, founded the effort to build the Vietnam Women's Memorial, the sculpture, which was dedicated in 1993, this is what I learned. In Washington, D.C., there were three memorials to women. One was to Joan of Arc, one was to Mary McLeod Bethune, and one was to the nuns of the battlefield. There was nothing there honoring military women or any other women of courage and had done you know, extraordinary things for our nation. So I was certain that with that piece of information, I could convince the agencies that, you know, it's time. And then I talked about what these military women had done and what they had accomplished and the contribution that we had given. And it was deaf ears. They, they had made up their minds. Point being, it was territorial. This was men. This was men's territory. And I was stepping on it. And I better not go any further. But hey, I had already stepped into men's territory a long time ago. And that's when I put on those combat boots and served beside them in Vietnam. And I was going to be damned if I was going to let them continue to tell me what to do when I believed something was right. And so for 10 years, <laughs> I fought and developed allies along the way. And you women, my sisters here, and you are all my sister veterans, we know that there are the good guys out there, and they are there. And they always will be. Or the bad guys. There's bad guys out there. The predators, the, the haters. But then there's all these good guys. And I found them. And at the end of the day, when I got the American Legion, the VFW, Admiral Crow, Colin Powell, Chuck Hagel, you name all these good guys out there, they got behind the effort and they fought with us women to get that memorial dedicated. So that's in the book. And it took me 50 years to write Healing Wounds because I didn't want to relive it. I didn't want to relive Vietnam. I didn't want to relive the 10 years that I sacrificed with four children under the age of 10 that I gave up to fight for this memorial. I didn't want to go back to that. And then I realized if women don't, we, if we don't use our own voice to share our own story, somebody else will write it for us. So we better tell our own story as best we can in a book, poetry, whatever it takes, but we have to use our own voices to get our story out there or it will get changed. And I didn't want my story changed. I, uh, one of the comments we just received was that this is making one of the audience members cry in a good way. And I am definitely feeling that as well. Um, thank you for all of that and for, for getting it down when you did uh, and for putting your voice out there. Um, and uh, Meg's uh, on to you as well. So I'm an Iraq war veteran. I had a purchase card, um, which just meant that I 
talked to a lot of different types of vendors and went into Kuwait City to purchase supplies, which meant if somebody needed a red pen and it was a specific brand, I had to deal with their comments about why it was I couldn't find it. Um, and then on to Talil, where I burned a lot of stuff. <laughs> so that was uh, my main function. And all of that has found its way into my writing um, and into my art. I consider myself a visual artist. Um, and thank you, by the way, that was so moving, especially to get to listen to all of you before I get to talk. Uh, what a privilege to be here amongst all of you today, especially. Um, so yeah, as a visual artist, I like to focus on folklore in poetry, uh, which encompasses myths, legends, fairy tales, music, art, theater. So my work brings in glitch, which is a type of filming that I'll do, um, art exhibitions, sound poetry, different anthologies that I've been a part of, open mics. I have an open mic tonight with a really awesome poet. She just... Ah, she's amazing. Her name is Erica Land. I cannot wait to see her tonight. Um, and then different workshops I've been involved with at the Veterans Writing Project, the Veterans Writing Workshop, Oxford Brooks Poetry Center. I know some of them are here today, so I want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Neil Monroe, Susie Campbell, and some other people. And then some seminars, Jerry Bell and Tracy Crow, and some real, uh, to me, just people I look up to and respect who have had a lot of compassion, and all of that has found its way into the visual aspects of what started off as just poetry and just poetry to me, I'm the vessel and I hold the heart of which art lies within. So it's never been just poetry for me, it is life. So thank you for having me, Jeanette. Thank you. And uh, you know, thank you all. I was writing down as you each kind of talked about your experiences and what you do right now. And I, I pulled out some words that stood out um, and I'm going to read them out and kind of go into our next question with this. Cause I think you've spoken some, but I really would like us to kind of get at, um, I guess your path a little bit more, especially through the, the writing and the art. Um, so some of the themes and words I noticed trauma, recovery, invisibility, several times I wrote invisibility, silence, alienation, and then reliving, and re-experiencing, but then towards the end, figuring out that we belong and the privilege of connecting and finding these kinds of relationships post-service and through that path. And uh, it just, you know, many of your words, works carried themes of these tensions between the expectations that we put on ourselves, the expectations of women and as veterans, tensions between the military and civilian elements of society. Um, You've spoken some, each of you, about how your uh, how your experiences informed your work. But can you talk a little bit, if you're willing, about how your particular path was shaped by the writing or the art form you chose, and how you want to share that moving forward, uh, like with the world or with the audiences that that find your work in some ways? Um, and Mags, I'd like to start with you since we just wrapped up with you as well on that. Okay, so I'm going to look off a piece of paper, because for me, some of these are a little bit trickier to talk about. So Sandpiper Man was about deployments. That's a poem I wrote, um, mostly about my husband's deployment, um, deployments. Uh, he's going on his 26th year in the military serving, um, teaches out at, uh, or used to teach out at ALU. 
um, which is Army Logistics University. So our conversations um, morph into not just my service, but also his service and, and all of those things combined. So Belly Jazz is about miscarriages. Um, silence is about sexual harassment. And like we all mentioned, it's a plunging elevator, single cable about to snap. Um, what happened to Vanessa Gillum, I just feel like that was heart-wrenching and it, it shook the bedrock. And so it's found its way into the poetry and it's also found its way into lending help to my voice for me to say, no, never again. Um, Nima is also about miscarriages and war. Uh, that's a poetry film. It's available at iceflow.com. Uh, Mr. Scratch is about sleep disorders. A lifetime of war in 250 words is about exactly what you think it's about. <laughs> Feeling like, you know, we've started this and finished it. And now our children are also going into the same places. And what's it going to take? Is it going to be our grandchildren next? Um, so that's, that's what that poem is about. A love letter to me is about suicidal ideation. Uh, Blue is about the pandemic and that's at the poetry archive. A Healing of Nations is one of my favorite poems because that's actually bringing in the mythology of the white doe and the idea that we had women that were in uniform during our civil war. And now it feels like they're kind of a ghost. And until we uh, talk about them and we bring them up, I used to give tours out at Petersburg National Battlefield. And until we make them real, um, they'll be largely forgotten. So a lot of the women here, that I feel like is our charge. So, um, and that's what I've been working on with, with my stuff. Thank you. Thank you for that. And now um, we all have more to look up and dig into as well from your work. And uh, I'd love to ask the same question from Di to Diane as well. Um, and to also, as you think about you know, or as you answer the question, can you give us a little bit about where you see maybe your path moving forward uh, from, from what you've done and, and how to keep connected to the community? I, I have several ways to answer that, I think. But first I want to talk about when I joined the military, and maybe you've all experienced this, but tremendous stereotypes and myths. When I joined the military, there was a stereotype of a woman in the military. And I quickly learned I didn't fit that stereotype. And then there was this myth about women in the military. And I was like, who are they talking about? My aunt was in the military during World War II. She is a GI Bill and got her doctorate degree. She's a beautiful woman and had a family. And yet the stereotype of women, and we all know what that stereotype, they weren't pretty. And I began to realize when I started the Vietnam Women's Memorial that we were still living with those myths and that stereotype and that it was gonna be my job to uncover who, who were these women who served in Vietnam and around the world during that era? What did they look like? And what are they accomplishing today? And so I, I realized that there was, we needed to transform the imagery and the conversation. It needed to be, when we talk about people in the military, it's not the men, it's the men and women in the military. And the images that we were seeing were all of men, the statues, the sculptures, textbooks, movies, men, men, men. Where were the women? And women were not too comfortable after World War II and Korea and even Vietnam to step out and be visible. And why? 
because they wanted to keep their service quiet because it would set them up for humiliation. I can't tell you the remarks that were made to me when I came home. For, I was no better than the baby. I was told I was no better than the baby killers in Vietnam because I was over there saving lives and I was oiling the war machine by saving lives. Now wrap your head around that comment. It was just outrageous. And so to transform those images and, and conversations, we had to get the women out there to share their stories. So we had this huge publicity push to identify the women and encourage them to talk to the press, to the media, get their stories in the newspapers, get them on 60 Minutes, which we did, five of us, get them out invisible so people could see, oh, these are the women who served in uniform. And when we did that, we elevated, we elevated them to the status that they deserved. These were hardworking, courageous, brave, honorable women who had sacrificed deeply and greatly. And once we got these stories on earth, it really turned things around. But as far as where I'm, where I'm going today, Jeanette, I'm 75 years old, so <laughs> I'm enjoying the years that I have left. I'm thankful I'm healthy, but it's what the Vietnam Women's Memorial will do for future generations and the components of that, you know, and making sure that the women's stories uh, are archived and we've been working hard on that. But um, the Vietnam Women's Memorial is doing its work. And what was its work? It was to help heal the women who served. And it was to help give them uh, a tangible place to connect. We don't heal alone. We heal together when we connect together. The Vietnam Women's Memorial brings thousands of people together, veterans and family members, Gold Star families. And it's a place to talk and connect and share stories. And we have storytelling at the, at the Memorial, every Memorial Day and every Veterans Day, except for COVID. But it, it's doing, the Memorial is doing its healing work. And my book is there to tell the story of who were the allies to help get it built. Where did the opposition come from and why? Why were so many men so against elevating women to the same position of honor that men have by a statue? It's because they wanted to keep women suppressed. They wanted our voices silenced. And, and, and as women, we have to be incredibly strong, military women especially, to move up in the ranks, enlisted or officer, to become who we can be. And we've had to prove ourselves. It's all about proving, proving, proving. And then once we prove ourselves, then we're accepted, sort of. <laughs> but long way around, it's, it's, it's pretty epic to answer a question like that for all of us, I think. Yeah, these are not light questions that can be answered in one to two sentences, especially given the experience y'all have all had. Um, and to your point about about women and just the broad experiences and, and using our voices and representing out there, I have one follow-up. Um, you note in your work that not all military women row in the same direction, which I thought was a great statement um, and definitely aligns with my experiences. And I can see panelists nodding along. Um, can you elaborate a little bit and, and how you saw that play out when you were uh, pushing for the monument to be built? I can, because um, we, we all come from different experiences. And when we think of public art, public art's very controversial. We all know that. And so there was great, even from women, 
who didn't support the Vietnam Women's Memorial. And, and I would have conversations with these women and um, I was very proud of them because they were very angry. Some women were very angry that Vietnam women were getting a, a memorial. Well, we were doing it ourselves. No one was doing it for us. So the other effort began and that's the Women's Memorial in Arlington, the Women in Military Service to America Memorial, which honors all women, past, present, future. And it is a building, it has a theater, it has a beautiful memorial, it's archival, it does, it keeps the data and the story. I mean, it's an amazing memorial. And I supported it. And I and I thought, you know, we're working in tandem. We are we're all after the same goal, and that's honoring women. And we need to work together to, to honor each other, to help each other, to expand each other's horizons and opportunities and stories. And so I felt very isolated, like, okay, I'm, Viet you know, I'm being cursed again, because it's Vietnam. And so I'm not gonna support it's Vietnam. And so, you know, we, as Vietnam veterans, and it's, it's, not, it's not a pity party, okay? It's just, I'm just stating the facts. It, I said it was like being operated on with a rusty knife, a wound that never heals. Vietnam was always and always will be a thorn in America's side because guess what? We lost that war, but we veterans didn't lose it. It wasn't us, it was the politicians that lost the war. It was those in Washington DC who were trying to run the war and not leaving it up to the military and our generals and so on. So we have had to live with the animosity, the antagonism, the denigration that we, and I was literally told at a, a VFW convention, somebody came right up to me and he said, not only do you women not deserve that memorial, you lost your war, you lost the war. He said that to me. And I was a veteran of a foreign war and had served to save lives. And this is a comment that I received uh, 18 years after the war's end. The VFW has changed its tune. They got behind the, the memorial. They support women veterans now, but they're, they're supporting us because we're getting out there and we're identifying ourselves and we're showing who we are and that we're capable and that we can do whatever we set out to do. Give us the mission and we'll get it done. But um, I hope that answers your question about, you know, military women that, you know, all military women who step up to serve after the end of the war, find their niche, find their way to help other women and our brother veterans too. And um, we, we, we find our unique way and find where our passion and where our skills lie. I didn't realize that my skills as a nurse and as a military woman would defy the odds in DC because it was like, be damned with them. If I could do what I did in Vietnam, I can tell them what I think and what I believe, and I'm not gonna quit because I never quit on a patient in Vietnam. We never said, oh, we're tired, let's just go home. I never ever gave up on a patient. We didn't. And I wasn't gonna give up on the mission to honor women because, hey, we, we know what we're doing is the right thing and they're just trying to keep us suppressed and down. But guess what, we won. We dedicated that monument in 1993, and it's there forever in perpetuity to tell the story. And one of the comments we just got in the chat from an audience member was that every life you saved was a war one. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
Thank you. Um, Kelly, I'm going to ask you the same question. If you could go into your work a little bit more and, and the path that you see forward. Uh, yeah, so my, my story, of course, is a, a little different because I'm a journalist. I'm a hack. That's what I do every day. So, um, But I think going into that story, I remember showing up in uh, Baghdad and sitting down with these guys in the hallway. I think that they felt like they could tell me their story because, A, I was a veteran, but also because I was a, a woman veteran. I think they felt comfortable talking to me. Um but one of the questions I kept asking them was, you guys can't be numb. You keep telling me you're numb, how you can't be numb or you're going to get stuck there. You're not going to be able to come out and, and be okay. And then I got back and I was writing their story and I was missing stop signs, just driving through them. I was drinking too much. I was just sad. Um, I couldn't focus on anything. And I didn't, notice. I didn't understand what was going on until someone said something to me about it, which is mind-blowing because I wrote about PTS. I wrote about these symptoms every day. I was writing about it for the book. Um, and to, to experience it at that level, I didn't have PTS. I had anxiety and de depression, but definitely some leftovers, you know, um, and to, to experience it at that level has informed everything I've done since, as has embedding with the family that had a soldier with PTS and writing about working with the, the father of the soldier who's who killed himself on patrol. Um, so now at the War Horse, we once a week publish a veteran's uh, reflection. And I work with veterans every week to, to tell their stories. And they're not all trauma stories, but they're, they're you know, life stories. And then I still do investigative reporting and work with reporters on that. And it's just been amazing to know how that can help someone put their experiences into a form that helps them heal or can help them heal as can listening to that story. So I think that's, that's the going forward is how do we help other, sorry, this is my MacArthur. Um, how do we help other veterans? How do we get their stories out there? So. Thank you. I want to ask one quick follow-up as well to that. Um, and you wrote about a dual military couple who faced their own set of problems with mental health implications. Why did you choose to write about that story in your work? Was this part of the process for you of working through or was there a different uh, direction? I think it started with an experience when that same day, that same day I talked about earlier, I wrote a blog about it and what had happened. And of course I couldn't name the, the guys we'd lost yet, but I named some of the, the ones who were there that, that day and, and what they were doing. And I heard from one of the moms. The mom sent me an email that said, oh my God, my son is alive. And <laughs> I just, it hadn't occurred to me that, you know, not naming the dead, but naming the living could have similar experiences on families back home. Um, at the same time, my grandfather, who was a World War II vet, his wife, my grandmother was sending notes saying, we're right there with you. We're, you know, my grandfather was a medic in World War II. Um, we we're, were living these stories through you. And I think it just brought home to me how much this was affecting people back home as well. Um, and then, yeah, talking with Kathy and Mike Baca, Kathy, they were both West Point grads. That's where they'd met. 
um, she was organizing the families back home and just their story was so compelling. The idea that, she, that he would sit on the roof at night and, and talk to her, talk it out every night. Um, just, it brought a whole different human facet to the story that seemed really important, really important to, to the experience of all of our service members, so. Thank you. And Pamela, I'm gonna turn to you now, if you could answer the same question. Um, well, one of the things that I experienced during the 15 years I was in, um, especially when I was air crew, uh, which was about seven years, uh, was the sexualization of my person uh, for being either having an accent or just having a natural woman's body and being amongst nothing but men. Um, I was often in crews of 36 people and being the only woman on the crew um, was bound to happen that sexualization will happen um, just because you can't complain about it because if you wanna be part of the group, you have to play along with everything. And um, unfortunately, all of that led to, uh, you know, my feeling that I didn't have anything to offer but my, my sex and so, um, I wanted to write, uh, especially on my new, uh, my new piece that I'm writing uh, right now is a fictional memoir of my time in the military. And I talk about the sexualization of the character and how she, um, she deals with, you know, sexual trauma, and then she develops PTSD, um, much like I did. And then, um, as I was writing this, uh, for my uh, for my thesis for my uh, MFA program, uh, my mentors kept insisting that this is a story that needed to be told um, because other women have gone through it. And um, now writing my thesis, my final thesis, I'm actually writing about um, um, military women in fiction and the lack of it. Um, we see it in memoirs. We see women uh, writing about the experience in the war through the memoirs and poetry. Uh, there's some science fiction with um, military women, but fiction, like military fiction um, is lacking on representation of uh, military women. And so I wanted to bring that up because that's what I'm writing currently is a military fiction. And um, my mentors insisted that this is a story that women need to tell, that women need to uh, be the ones to expose uh, what the military is about and see it from their eyes because it's just not being told outside of memoirs, um, which I've, I've worked with wonderful women. I work, um, Jerry Bell, Tracy Crow, uh, Ryan Lee Dosti. They um, have been incredibly supportive of my work. Um, they have helped uh, writing this thesis. And so I wanted to, um, going forward, I wanted to expose that, um, that trauma that women have constantly deal with because it is a constant trauma of being, not being made visible, not um, being heard, their stories being minimized to just a footnote. Um, so basically, uh, 
I'm, I'm hoping that by writing this, I can uh, continue this, this opening of um, women in the military and their experiences um, outside of the memoir platform and poetry platform and make it into literary fiction. Just so that, so we're more visible, we're, we're heard. Um, just like these other women uh, in this panel have been telling their stories, um, I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to share my experience and how being a, a minor, uh, you know, a minority in the military leads to being oppressed and silenced. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I love the visibility. It is so important to see and to see others and to be able to imagine. And I, you know, I look at my kids and I know what they see um, and what they imagine as a result. So thank you for that. Um, I want, it's time to kick off into our audience questions. I'm going to start with one. Um, we had some built into the pre-planned questions, but these kind of mesh together pretty well. So I'm just combining a little bit. Um, but uh, here's one question from an audience member. I'm currently in the process of pursuing my calling to tell my story through a memoir of poems and prose I've written. I've been doing public speaking peer advocacy for several years now, and I am ready to progress in my platform through book publication and specific advocacy work in the military community. So this audience member wants to know what route you pursued to become successful published authors and public speakers. Um, and I think because you each have taken such a different route, um, I want I want each of you to tackle this. So um, who would like to go first? No pressure. Um, I guess I can go first. Um, honestly, I, I, the only book uh, I self-published one of my compilation of short stories. Um, it, it was well received, but it wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't have the knowledge that I have now when I first put it out there. So um, I didn't do a lot of um, uh, PR on it, so it wasn't well known. Um, my second story when it was published in the anthology Choices uh, was actually, I found the, uh, I, I found that it was much easier going through a well-established um, anthology series. Um, they chose my story because it fit their requirements. Um, they liked it, so they published it, but it was one of those um, only for recognition, not for money. <laughs> so, uh, which was great. I just wanted, I just wanted my, my story printed and um, it was. So now working towards publishing this um, fictional memoir, um, I'm gonna be going through the natural, the the more established route of uh, finding an agent, uh, getting it edited, and then put it out to publishers out there if it is picked up. Um, my MFA program has been great. Uh, they've been giving me a lot of, you know, leads as to where I can go, as well as uh, forming friendships with other female veteran writers that have helped me uh, figure out what steps I need to take. Uh, in order to get published. So that has been um, a major help for me. Uh, 
2021 file. I I was on mute to add on to that. Um, one of the comments we just said said, thank you, all of you. I needed this. I'm a Vietnam era cold warrior and a writer. You are my tribe and I needed to see you and hear you. You inspire me. So um, you're making a difference right now. So thank you for that, Pamela. Um, Mags, can we go to you next? Since uh, I know the, the first question spoke specifically of uh, poems and prose. Yes. Um, I would say hop on Twitter, follow me. Um, I'm at Mags Nebo on Twitter and kind of just watch what's happening. Um, there are lots of different small presses and they will actually put out a notice saying, you know, you have so much time. This is what we're looking for and submit. Now, what I wish I had known ahead of time is that you need to stay in your lane. <laughs> so by that, I mean, know your boundaries. You're the writer and then there's an editor. So you write and you find out who is the editor. Get their name down on your cover letter and there should be a cover letter. Um, and then name your pieces. Do not explain your pieces. Um, that's something I wish I had known. You know, you can go and be long drawn out and give them footnotes, but you don't need to do that. You just need to name your pieces and then sign it. It's a very simple process, but it is time consuming because each place will have their own format. They'll either use submittable or they'll use their own websites, but that's stuff you learn along the way. And as you navigate and as you start to get to know the different editors from these different presses, um, you'll start to see what their, their flow is like. And some of them, most of them are very compassionate people. Uh, they have a lot of grace. Tracy Crow is probably on this right now watching. She is a literary agent. She and Jerry Bell, I know we've mentioned them a couple times during this, and it's because so much grace they have afforded to us. Um, I can remember the first time I had them look at my website, and it was a disaster zone, honestly. I mean, there were different colors all over, because I'm an artist. And I said, what do you think of it? And I put your name on that. Aren't you so happy? And, and, and I was just gushing with all of this, you know, thank you, thank you for, you know, loving me. I had, you know, one of those moments. And, and they were very, very sweet to me. And I will never forget that because kindness, be kind to yourself. Okay, this is not easy. What we're talking about is not easy. And I think because we've gone through this pandemic now, maybe people understand what it's like to go. I mean, I the longest I went without seeing my mom physically seeing her because of the different transitions was uh half of a decade. So, and just seeing her on the screen meant everything to me. So find those people that, like we said, are your people and stick to them and, and know that they have your backs and, um, and I'll have your back. If you follow me, I will show you as much as I can and we'll go from there because I do think it's important. Look, we had uh, general Harriet Tubman, she needs to be <laughs> receiving a Medal of Honor after all of this time, don't we think? Um, we have one Medal of Honor recipient, and that's Mary, Dr. Mary Walker. So um, like uh, Diane Carlson Evans said, they tried to take it away. So and by they, I mean the people who want to silence and the people who don't want to see us. So if you can, and that's, that's, the, that's the kicker. If you can make yourself visible, then do so. And if you can't find the kind of people who accept you in whatever part of your journey you're on, because they're out there. Thank you. That's fantastic. Um, I really appreciate that. And we're getting 
we've gotten, I don't know, 20 something questions. We're getting, we're getting a ton of questions and all different aspects. So you're generating a lot of energy. Thank you. Um, Kelly, can we go to you next to talk about the process you went through since um, I think it's a little bit different based on what you do. It is. I almost hate telling this story, but I, I wrote the, the series for army times. Um, a couple of publishers reached out to me and said, would you like to write a book? Um, so <laughs> I did, but the, the general process is you write a proposal for a nonfiction um, book and it's basically a, a overview. You write out what each of the chapters is going to be about. You write a couple of sample chapters and you send it off to an agent. Um, I also got lucky because I was working with Sean Naylor at the time who wrote Not a Good Day to Die and he introduced me to his agent. So it, it definitely isn't the same path. And then of course, once you get I say of course, but you get established as a certain kind of writer. Um, my agent introduced me to Kate Germano. Kate Germano's agent, we wrote a proposal. I adore her, by the way. Um, and I'm I'm doing the same thing now with another co-author, you know, writing a um, special forces book about um, diversity. <laughs> so, so that's been my process. But if anyone wants to write a piece for us at the Warhorse, warhorse.org, just hit me a note. And um, yeah, like Mags was saying, the, the most recent book is a hookup from a friend from the community. So know your people. <laughs> That's good advice as well. Thank you. And Diane, onto you for the same question about the, um, the route you took and recommendations. Well, I'd have to say the very first thing we have to overcome is our fear. Fear of writing, fear of sharing our story, fearing, fear of it not being good enough, fear of nobody wants to hear it anyway, Nobody will believe me. Those were all my fears. Why write a book? Nobody's going to believe me anyway. Now, remember, I'm still going back to Vietnam. Or nobody's going to want to read it. And number two, um, once you overcome your fear, it's a good thing if you've kept a journal, a diary, and you've documented things along the way so that you have a reference. You have something. All the letters, every letter I ever sent home my mother saved, it was all right there. And I had a diary, and I'm a saver. Now, when I... Uh, when I decided to write the book, I had already written it in my head, and I counted when I prepared the archives for the Library of Congress, they're all at the Library of Congress, I had given, I, I had kept the journal, a log, I had given 465 speeches in the, those 10 years, and in my speeches was my book and testimony. I testified at 35 different congressional hearings, uh, Commission of Fine Arts, National Capital Memorial Commission, National all the agencies in DC that I had to testify to convince them that women deserve this memorial. <laughs> and I had saved all of that. And so next, number three, find a co-author if you're reluctant to do it yourself. I found a fabulous co-author. I couldn't have been luckier, Bob Welch. He was my coach. He got me to tell the story and then I, the story was here but to put it in a cohesive a framework, a structure, I didn't know what was gonna be the first chapter, the middle, the end. I didn't know how to start or finish. And he kept me uh, grounded, but he also, he said, Diane, that's another book, that's too much. I said, but it has to be in this book. He said, no, we're gonna put the high, he helped me decide what was crucial to be in the book and keep it, what he wanted, he said, was a page turner. 
So it's like 265 pages. So, but overcoming the fear and then finding your allies, a supportive family, supportive friends, getting a great agent. I got lucky. I got lucky with good editors. And, and then finally it's published. And then you're quaking in your boots because when I was, when I started out to build the Vietnam Women's Memorial, I had death threats. I had death threats. I had people circling my house. I had letters. I had phone calls. And these were horrible. And they were terrifying. But I got over that because if I could, again, if I could survive Vietnam, I could survive that. But so far, nobody has threatened to kill me since I, I published the book. So that's the good news. But it, it takes a lot of courage, I think, for women and, and especially, you know, Pamela, you know, the whole sexual in Vietnam. I mean, it's been centuries that women have been raped, sexually assaulted, harassed in the military. During the Vietnam era, we had nowhere to go to report. We didn't report it. We didn't dare report it. We would have been kicked out, labeled troublemakers. We would have been blamed. We would have been transferred. So we just sucked it up. And we watched each other's backs. We talked to each other. We kept secrets and went to Japan for an abortion or abortions, believe it or not, were legal in military hospitals in Vietnam during the 60s. Believe it or not, abortion in a mil and was legal. And I guarantee you, I know women who had them. And then they lived with that. And then they moved on and tried to heal from that. Of course, Richard Nixon changed that. I mean, that didn't last long. So, um, but again, just overcoming the fear and then just get in and do it and, and have the courage to finish it and let it, then let it go, let, let it out there and let it fall. And um, it's, the, it's your story and it'll inspire other women veterans to tell their stories. And if we do nothing else, but inspire other women veterans and women in the military to share their story too. We've accomplished something. Thank you. Um, there's a lot in there too. I wish we had more than the time that we have on the clock to just kind of dig in there. Um, you know, one of the questions that we've gotten a couple of different times from people over the last few minutes is um, about emotions. How do you deal with your own emotions during the writing process and after. I think it was just about writing, but but hearing all four of you talk and imagining what that might be like, how do you deal with whether it's compartmentalizing or processing or using your emotions through that process? Anyone want to jump on this one to start? Pamela? I'll do it. I'm the poet. Um, and then Pamela. Um, I think that the Veterans Affairs should have an entire art wing. It should just be open. We should be able to use art as much as possible. Um, the National Park Service should have a poet in residence there consistently that's a veteran. Um, and all of our military installations should have art programs out the wazoo. I just feel like art heals. So that would be my two cents. If I were a policymaker, if I were driving things, that is how I would heal things is through art. I don't know what Pamela's going to say, but that's the poet in me coming out. Um, I was gonna, uh, honestly, you're right. Art is kind of how it healed me. Um, it, I started this, this fictional memoir writing the, uh, the VA for, um, my, my rating, I had to write exactly what had gone down during my sexual assault in order to get uh, rated. 
And when I wrote it all down, I realized I'm like, it was cathartic. It, it definitely was um, some sort of liberation of, because I never got to record it. I went and um, finally spoke about it and wrote it down. And I realized that I needed to write this as a full novel because there was so much packed into just that one uh, event. Um, so that's how I started um, using what happened to me as a, as a method of uh, healing. Um, I think MFA programs have been amazing in um, culturing this, um, this movement for uh, veteran women to write about what has happened to them. Um, honestly, I feel that the VA should should invest in paying for the MFA programs <laughs> because it's been um, the most healing that I have ever done was through these semesters writing for it. Um, and like you said, art is, is what heals the most. Thank you. And Kelly or Diane, would either of you like to answer that one? Yeah, um, journalists have a long history of being, you know, thick-skinned in order you go out and you cover a really bad car accident and the next day you go out and cover another really bad car accident, but you're like a, a lawyer, <laughs> you know, you're an ambulance chaser and so you're not allowed to have feelings because you're choosing to be there or um, because your boss tells you you can't. Or, so it's interesting that at the same time we were writing about PTS and the troops, we weren't talking about it in journalists. And it turns out that combat correspondents have the same rates as, as uh, soldiers do, um, service members do. Um, and so I think it took a really long time before newsrooms started to recognize that when your people come back from the war zone, you you welcome them, you you say, how are you? You recognize, re, you re, re, recommend resources. Uh, there's a really great organization called the DART Institute that has fellows. Um, and that was how I built up a community of other people who were like me in that we consider ourselves first responders in a way, you know, um, in DART, came out of the, the hurricane, uh, Hurricane Katrina, because journalists would co show up at a, a place that was supposed to have like water resources for people who'd been affected by the hurricane. And it would say no journalists, but the journalists were also living there, you know, and someone went like this and, and put the pieces together. And, and now we try to address that a little better. So um, mostly community and writing is, is how I deal, I think not the booth so much as anymore. <laughs> Thank you. Can, I, can I respond quickly about what it's like for caretakers and for nurses, Jeanette, is there time? Absolutely. So it's a little different, I think, for nurses, docs, medics, all the paramedical you know, professionals uh, who we are there to care for the patients. They come first, we don't. And we, we are the caretakers, but then who takes care of the caretaker? And as nurses, especially in a combat zone and in the military, where you have such great numbers of patients, you become more robotic, you shut down. We, did, we shut down our emotions basically so that we could get through the next and the next and the next patient that would come through. If we if felt emotionally uh, distraught over seeing one more body with one less limb, um, we couldn't get our work done. And that's how we thrived in Vietnam. And that's why I was so proud of the women and 
all the medical professionals I worked with, that patient came first. And the women, we women were not shrinking violets. We were there to take care of the men. The men were not taking care of us. That's another myth. Oh, women can't go into combat because all the men will be so worried about the women. The men won't get anything done. They'll be protecting the women. What a myth. The women were protecting the men in Vietnam. We didn't go under the bed when our hospital was rocketed and mortared until all the patients had had their bloodlines and their IVs extended and mattresses thrown on, on top of them. Then we got under our bed if there was time. And then you, you do that day in, day out, day in, day out, and then you come home. And then you try to forget it. And you put it, you compartmentalize. And when I was writing my book, I ended up in the ER at the VA. And, and I, I just, it, it was all un unpacking. And it was all coming back. Because now I'm right. And, and I, I felt like, why write a memoir unless it's honest? Forget writing a memoir unless you're totally, completely honest. You don't have to tell every secret. You don't have to tell everything. Of course, you'll be protecting some people. You'll be protecting yourself. But tell as much as you can. And people will see that. And if you have the courage to tell it, other people will say, if she can talk about it, I'll talk about it. But um, we need, I, I was diagnosed. Uh, I didn't think I had PTS. I mean, I'm a nurse. I take care of myself. I'm, I'm always fine. People say, how are you? I'm fine. I'm just fine. We do that, but we're not fine deep down. When we go for help or when we, the, what one of our panelists talked about, writing it down was so cathartic. I was told that I should write a letter to the guy who assaulted me. I don't know where he is, where he is, if he's still alive, but she said, Diane, I want you to write a letter to him and I want you to tell him what you think about what he did to you. I went home and I sat down and I didn't know if I could do it. And I started that letter, dear expletive, <laughs> comma. And I just told him off. I told him what, a, I just told him off. And he, he, was, he was a colonel. I was a second lieutenant. And um, it was so cathartic. It, it truly was. But we have to step out of our comfort zone. We, we have to go for help. We have to step into the vet center we have to step into the VA and say, I need some help. And when the first therapist doesn't work, you ask, you say, I, I can't talk to him or her. You ask for another one. You have to be your own best advocate to get through this and, and to become whole and healthy and happy and joyful and free of guilt and free of shame. The shame and the guilt that we felt over the Vietnam War was stronger than than what we actually did in Vietnam. I had one vet who committed suicide. His last words to me, Diane, I could take what I took in Vietnam, but I can't take what's happening to me here at home. And he committed suicide. So yeah, it's, it's a lot to unpack, but we need to do it. Thank you. And we have uh, just under 10 minutes left. I have one big question, then one kind of short one for, for you all um, before we wrap up. And the first is, if you could give us, for lack of uh, more time, one thing that you wish you had known, that you learned through the process of, of writing, doing your art, getting it out there, that you wish you'd known at the start of that process, what might that one thing be? You can take a minute to think if you want. Mine uh, would be workshops. 
I would say if you can go to a free workshop with um, somebody who's leading it, who's experienced, um, that's very helpful because that will help you uh, get your flow going. Because sometimes that's just it, being able to start to say something, being able to get rid of the silence a little bit. And I have lots more things, but that would be my, my number one thing is a free workshop. Do you know, Mags, if there are resources available for people to find workshops near them? Or how did you find the one or ones that you attended? So the, the short answer is there aren't enough. There should be more and they should be available all the time. Just like how we fought to make sure that we would have a suicide chat. We should also have a poetry or workshop chat. Somebody you can just call up and go, look, (laughs) are you awake? (laughs) I have this idea and I need to write this down right now. Um, But um, yes, you just do a search in Twitter, put in um, workshop. And the ones I named off were the writing, uh, the veterans writing workshops, the veterans writing project, Oxford Brook. use and I've, I've met people and we've networked throughout that so and I, I'm not sure what happened with the audio there um, it sounded like you cut out a little bit after Oxford I don't know if anyone else had that problem or if it was just me yeah yeah can, so what did you say right after the Oxford one so veterans writing project veterans writing workshop Oxford Brooks Poetry Center and just put it into search on Twitter um, but there need to be more and they need to be like I said in as many places as possible um, I just feel like if you're able to in a safe environment say things that help educate not just the public but also educate yourself and inform yourself of what's going on then you don't need to express it in violent means you're making art in that way it can't hurt any anyone. All it can do is heal. So workshops are the most important thing. Those three especially, but there are more. And the more you start to talk to people, it's just my mind right now. So. Thank you. Pamela? For me, one of the things that I I found incredibly helpful is have um, someone there to edit uh, my pieces as I write them. Uh, I've been incredibly lucky that Ryan Lee Dosti is my best friend and she's also an author. Um, uh, so we exchange our writings to continually help each other edit and see what is needed and what is not needed on part of that uh, writing process. And uh, to be honest, without her help, um, I will have been just so behind on my writing because uh, I feel that that was uh, including with my mentors, um, the best feedback that I got was from her and from my mentors in my program. So having someone there to read what you write and be honest with you about what needs to be changed or what needs to be edited um, helps a lot. Okay, thank you. And Kelly or Diane? Well, I'm going to come from a little different perspective. Um, but Mags, I love what you said about art is healing. The Vietnam Women's Memorial is a sculpture. It's art. It's public art by Glenna Goodacre with the three women and the wounded soldier. She wanted the um, design to be left up to the interpretation of the viewer. So when the vi- visitor comes, you don't see rank. You don't see uh, a patch. You don't know if she's an enlisted woman or an officer. 
you don't know, you do know that the woman tending to the wounded soldier, well, that's pretty obvious. She's a doc, a medic, or a nurse. She's the medical person. Um, so, but even then, after the beauty of that dedication and all it meant to so many of us, an art critic from the University of Colorado wrote in a, a Smithsonian publication, and she said that the Vietnam Women's Memorial was nothing but a bronze wet dream for the American GI. Now wrap your head around that. So <laughs> art is healing to us veterans and what we want, which speaks to us and helps us heal becomes a, a you know, sore point for some art critic, but you can't pay attention to them. It's like, well, that's her problem. But one of the things, not everyone's gonna set out to put a statue on the National Mall, right? But, and, and, but writing a book might feel like it because it's a big endeavor. But I have to say that what helped me start the Vietnam Women's Memorial was I was naive, totally naive. If I had known what it was gonna take 10 years and, and all the animosity and cruelty and mean-spiritedness and difficulty in navigating the paths to get to the, to the goal, if I had known that I would not have started that effort. There is no way I was, I am not, I can't do that. So it's the, I can't do that, that keeps us down. Cause I would have said to myself, there is no way I can do that. I'm not, I'm not even gonna start. So I was naive and the less I knew the better, but as it evolved, and, and I heard all the critics, the, the matter they made me, the harder I worked. So you never know what's inside of you. And I think as military women, we have been through a lot having served in the military. My military background, my training, my experience and what I did in the military helped me achieve my goal. So I'm so proud of military women. Man, we get out, we could do anything. And we, we have that experience and um, the skill sets, and they're all different. You, you, none, of, no, none of you here were in nursing, and, but each one of us have come to our lives after you know, getting out of the military and driven to accomplish something uh, afterwards. And I just have to say, Jeanette, you've been a marvelous uh, facilitator, you know, facilitating this. Thank you so much, and I just love all you military women that I've just met today. I just, I wanna read your books. I wanna read more. This has just been really, really inspiring. Thank you. And, and we have time for Kelly and then we'll, we'll close up. Um, Kelly, if you wanna add anything for your things you wish you'd known at the start. Yeah, just real quick. Of course, everything Diane just said, um, but I wish I'd known about Scrivener as a way to organize my project. I use it daily for long form journalism too. Um, and then I, I wish, I, I think I went in sort of naively also thinking that, you know, you get a big publisher and they're gonna make your piece wonderful, your book wonderful. And the reality is they're short, short staff like everybody else. So get it right before you turn it in and, and get the readers and, and expect that it's, it's gonna get some love but it's not gonna get as love, much love as you want. So. 
Thank you. Last one is just a short answer. Uh, and then I'll turn it back over to Natalie to close us up. But we've had several requests for um, contact info. How, would you do you have a preferred means if you're interested in engaging with people LinkedIn or Mags is pointing to the website right behind her, which is really well done. Thank you. Um, does anyone have anything specific? Do you have a preference or idea? Uh, LinkedIn works for me. Um, it's uh, open to the public, so it's easy to find. It's just my name, <laughs> so nothing hard to there. Uh, you can always message me, and I'll try to get back to you with whatever you need. Thank you. Jeanette, they'd have to have my book, Healing Wounds, uh, but in the back of the book is my website, and there's a contact. They can contact me at my website, which is in the back of the book, Healing Wounds, a combat nurse's 10-year fight to win women a place of honor in Washington, DC. Perfect, thank you. And Kelly? I'm on Twitter, Kelly S. Kennedy, uh, and you can email me at, at the Warhorse. It's kelly.kennedy at thewarhorse.org. Thank you all. And uh, Natalie, I'm ready to turn back over to you. Um, and before I do, I just wanna say to our panelists, thank you so much. It was inspiring to get to speak with each one of you. And uh, hopefully my adjustments on the fly made it better uh, with the questions as they came in, but, but you've inspired me to go back and do more work on my own. Um, and thank you to our audience for the fantastic questions and for participating. Natalie, over to you. Thank you all so much to the fabulous panelists for participating in this important discussion, as well as thank you to Jeanette for framing the issue so thoughtfully and moderating a very thought-provoking discussion including the audience uh, questions who were so, so wonderful. And thank you to our intern Elena for a great deal of help behind the scenes. To learn about future events like this one, go to cnas.org and click follow to sign up for updates from the Military Veterans and Society Program or follow CNASDC on Twitter. Our next event in this author series will be focused on Asian Americans and Pacific Islander veteran authors to be held in May. Stay tuned for more information on that event. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you to the panelists and Jeanette, and please keep the conversation going. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.